0: running is the most simplistic and puristic um, sport you can do. Like you put one foot in front of the other, you run as hard as you can for as long as you can. And, you know, whoever crosses the finish line first wins. But to see people now not have that joy. And, you know, I ask a lot of athletes, why did they start running? You know, and a lot of them started running because they wanted to run with their dad or they wanted to make the school team. And they speak with all this joy. And it saddens me that at this point that a lot of them, they don't have joy. Like this is like, they just They've got tunnel vision and they're going to make it and they'll sacrifice everything. And, you know, they come to training and you can just see that there's just this um, tension in them and they just can't let it go. And they've already analyzed, overanalyzed, and psychoanalyzed just the training workout. And I'm like, just let it go. Like, you'll have good runs and you'll have bad ones. I mean, if you have a bad one, catch up with some friends and go out and have a beer and just let it go, you know. And so trying to get them to realize that training is a cumulative effect and it takes weeks and months and years. And if you've already got this attitude starting out in your career, you're not going to last. And so trying to get them centered as to why they do it, what they want to get out of it, but more importantly, enjoying it.
1: That's Lee Troop.
0: And this is episode
1: 72 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. What's up everybody? It's your host Mario Fraioli and this week's guest is one of my favorite people in the sport of running, Lee Troop. Troopy, as he's known by his friends, is a retired three-time Olympian in the marathon for Australia. He's got a personal best of 2:09:49 for the distance. He's lived in Boulder, Colorado for the last 10 years where he coaches a handful of athletes and puts on local running events around Boulder County. I caught up with him a little over a month ago. We had a great, wide-ranging conversation. We talked about his competitive career, from joining his dad on runs when he was only 11 years old, to running at South Plains College in Levelland, Texas, and how his brief time there prepared him for a career as an international athlete. We talked about retiring from the sport in his early 40s, and why masters racing just doesn't interest him. Along those lines, we got into the struggles that athletes face after retirement, and what he would recommend based on his own experiences. We talked about coaching and why he stepped back from it last year after one of his athletes, John Gray, committed suicide, and also how that experience affected him and changed his perspective moving forward. Lee has a real passion for people, and that's something that we got into here, along with the discussion of mental well-being and why it's important to work on that, along with your relationships throughout your entire life. And there's a lot more to this one. It's loaded. I took a lot away from it personally. I think you'll love it. So let's dive right in with Lee Troop. Well, uh, it says we have 25 hours of recording time, so we can literally go all day if we need to. But, Lee Troop, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thanks, Mario. Thanks for having me. Last time I saw you was in Chicago this past fall at the Chicago Marathon. We had a brief interaction in the hotel lobby. I'd love to learn what's been going on for you since then.
0: Uh, I guess a lot. So, um I took a break from coaching uh after Chicago and um you know, I guess the backstory to that was that uh my one of my top athletes, uh, Jonathan Gray had committed suicide in February. So um it had been a really rough six months up to that point and um, you know, I'd had uh, just moments of, you know, do I want to coach? Do I want to coach? And I guess I went through a lot of, um, self-infliction of, you know, trying to work out why John did what he did and, you know, was I to blame? Did I play a role? Did I see it? Could I have prevented it? And, um, just through that whole period. um, I had Laura, who I was coaching, running Chicago Marathon. So I had to obviously stay, you know, with eyes fixed on the prize. And then uh, we got to Chicago and Laura didn't have a great run. She DNF'd and she'd been injured for um, probably three or four weeks uh, leading into it. And um, I didn't want her to run. And obviously the, you know, she DNF'd and it was pretty tough to deal with and so I uh, after that race took a trip to Australia for a couple of weeks and I just made the decision that when I got back I was going to take a break from coaching and just try to get myself calibrated again and um, I took that break and um, I'm now back coaching I've only got uh, five athletes at the moment that I'm working with and not looking to expand beyond that Um, and just focusing on their efforts leading into 2020 um and yeah just going from there so just good to be back with a you know good good clear mind and vision and um looking forward to just getting back amongst it again um bit by bit and much more slowly this time so up until last fall you were coaching
1: some individuals you had laura uh and a couple others i imagine you're also coaching the boulder track club elite so you had a training group here in Boulder, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah, correct. So uh, I was coaching the high performance team uh, that we had here and, you know, I was coaching about 20, 25 people. Um, And then obviously we have the sub elite. So working with a lot of recreational people and working with the, you know, the, I guess the recreational group is not a problem because running is not their job. Like running is just a, an extension of what they do. They have full-time jobs and have families and running is just an outlet. So you're not really on that knife edge. Um, but working with elites, um, I've certainly seen a change in the 10 years that I have been coaching at this level. And there seems to be a lot more um, mental pressure and anguish and, and, um, and stress, which uh, you know, I jokingly said before you know, John had passed away that I've become more of a psychologist just than a than a running coach, which um, you know, looking back on it now, I guess no truer word has been has been said. But um, just the whole dynamics changed. I mean I was coaching Laura and Sean Quigley and, you know, I had just a, a fantastic group and it just took one little thing just to change and then just my whole world from underneath just fell apart and um, you know, I, I look back on 2018 and it's just honestly just a blur. Like just there's so much of that year that I've just blacked out. Whether that's intentionally or not, I'm not really sure. And um, But certainly moving into 2019, it's just good to be invigorated. Um, working with um, some great young kids, Jacob Riley, that used to be with the Hansons team. Sure. Uh, he's been injured with an Achilles injury for like two or three years and um, he moved out here shortly after the 2016 um, trials. and uh, We had surgery on it. Uh, a year ago, and he had a couple of setbacks, but he is finally healthy and fit, and it's just been great to to see that. And you know, I've got another young girl, Carrie Verdon, who you know um, she was injured a senior year at CU, and uh, then she took a year out, and so I started with her where she just wanted to get back into running. She's a teacher, so I was actually getting up at six o'clock in the morning coaching her. Um, I don't know, things just started to change a little bit in particularly with those two people. Um, cause I'd like said, I'll just, I'll help them out to the end of the year, but then after the end of the year, I don't think I'm going to coach anymore. Um, but just seeing, you know, Jake with the desire, um, to get back to his best and to make the Olympic trials with all the hardships that he's faced has just been inspirational. And with Carrie, you know, just like she's a full-time teacher, she's getting up at 6am and here I am driving in the car at with my lights on and it's snowing and those little things are the things that as a coach I I really admire and I love and you know I'm a I'm a blue collar guy and so when I see athletes you know doing that it certainly didn't take long for me to all of a sudden just realize that this is what I love to do. Um, I'm not you know I guess you learn in hindsight with what you've done. And as a coach, you know I certainly don't want to have big groups and I certainly don't want to have the, I can't say no, no answer where everyone just comes. Um, I think I'm just going to keep it pretty small. Um, I haven't traveled yet. I've only traveled to one race um, in probably nine months and that was just Club Cross and um, Jim Estes went with me, um, which was great. I wouldn't have gone on my own, but um, with nationals coming up, that'll be the first first big event that I've been to um, since Chicago. So um, it's just baby steps. And for me, you know, when I see coaches and agents and everyone checks in on my well-being, I sort of feel like Bill Murray and Groundhog Day having to retell everything. And so that's sort of, I guess I've just needed that time for me to get to a point where I've accepted obviously what's happened with John, um, know that there was nothing that could have been done to have prevented it. And um, in the words of Kevin Hansen, you know, like, um, this will be something that I'll deal with, but I'm never going to forget. So uh, we'll just see how we go moving into 2019. And then obviously next year, 2020.
1: Number of directions I want to go off of that, but back to what you said about difference with what athletes are dealing with now versus 10 years ago, and you were an elite athlete yourself. What is causing a lot of that stress and anxiety and anguish that professional runners are dealing with today?
0: Well, I think... So firstly, misconceptions like when people come out of college, they think they have to be a full-time athlete to be successful, which is incorrect. I mean, Steve Jones was a full-time Air Force mechanic and broke the world record in the 80s, but there's this perception now. And I've seen this change where, you know, there was a little bit of pressure in high school, but the pressure came in college. Now there's a lot of pressure in high school and now middle school programs are are running cross-country and track. So we're seeing earlier and earlier and earlier in ages that there's this pressure for um, kids to actually perform. And my daughter, you know, she loved running, but once she moved to middle school, just the pressure and expectation to go from where it's just fun to then like five days a week and doing three or four miles each run. That just wasn't what she was interested in. Running it had always been fun for her and she didn't want to take it seriously. And so I'm just starting to see that just as they're getting younger, there's more pressure to perform. If you don't get on the high school team, then how are you going to get on a college team? And when you perform well at high school, what college will give you a scholarship? And so when they get into school, everything, I guess they have their blinkers on. It's four years where Um, I call it the Kenyan process. You just get in, you're running for championships, whether it's indoor, outdoors, cross country. Um, The school pays for your education. They pay for your housing. They put food on the table for you. You get clothing and apparel. And then as soon as they come out, they're not equipped for the real world. Like all of a sudden they've got to get a job. And obviously if they've got a degree in something, they're not Really going to get a job that's going to be part time or allow allowing them to travel you know around the country to races, so they usually take a secondary job that's not in their field, but that job will allow them to take time off to race and they 've still got to pay the rent and they 've got to pay taxes and they 've got to put food on the table and they just it takes them a couple of years to really work out how to be an adult, which I know that's funny to say, but they've had their hands held for such a long time that when they step out to being an adult it's just things that they're not prepared for so and then they realize that well i'm not going to make the olympics i'm not going to do this and if i'm going to do it i have to commit and you go to races and you see the depth in races and so if you're not getting appearance fees and if you're not getting sponsorships and if you're not getting prize money um, they just get to a point where they either get broken um, or they have a breakthrough Um, and as we found with John, you know, the pressure he kept putting on himself to try and make the Olympics. And, you know, I know that he could have been a great marathoner. I saw the training, the, you know, the, the training doesn't lie when you see it. Um, and I was confident going into LA that he would certainly run a better marathon than he did at CIM. Um, he just ran foolishly at, at CIM, like he went went six miles too early, and he paid the price because he blew up six miles uh, before the end. Um, but like I said, just seeing that and the pressure that he had on himself, and trying to live from week to week, and you know, we've seen contracts that are performance based. If you're injured, you're getting a reduction in your in your contract. So it's just hard. You know, kids are rolling the dice and to them, like, this is it, you know, like, this is their life, like, this is what they're throwing everything at. Um, And I can tell you that I keep saying to my athletes, when things don't go well, that the sun will come up tomorrow. Um, But they just don't see it because they're in the moment. So uh, one thing I would definitely do differently today is certainly partnering with a psychologist and, and someone that I don't know, someone that's independent, but then someone that the athletes can actually talk to once a month to talk about things, um, completely, um, with me outside the picture to have them just open up and get them to realize that it is, it's a job, but it's not, it's not life or death. Did you struggle with that same type of pressure throughout your own athletic career? No, um, I think Australia is completely different in that we don't have the professional setup that you have. We don't have the collegiate system. We certainly don't have the sponsorship. So people have jobs and, you know, we just saw on the weekend, Liam Adams finished sixth at the Gold Coast Marathon and he's a tradie, you know, and he works five days a week, you know, in his um, profession and he still fits in full-time work. Um, And that's the system that we grow up with. Everyone is like training early in the morning before they go to work or they're meeting after work and training. And if, Running pans out, you might get something, uh, but you get to also travel the world and go to races to try and qualify for the Olympics. So there's certainly not that pressure uh, in Australia. It's certainly more here in the US. I mean, it's magnified a lot more. You've just got to see all the professional groups, all the training groups. And again, the sponsorship dollars that are out there for the volume of people that are running, it's a very small pie that everyone's fighting for.
1: I'd love to talk about John Gray for a bit if you'd be open to it.
0: When did you start working with him? Uh, so I started working with John um, just before the 2016 Olympic trials, so probably 2015. Yep. And from his standpoint, when he came to
1: you to ask you to be his coach, what were his objectives as an athlete when he first approached you to work together?
0: Um, he had a lot of frustrations. He'd been running with team USA, Minnesota, and had been working with Dennis and just things weren't gelling there and he wanted to come across. So I called Dennis. I, any athlete that um, has come from another group, I've always called the coach. Um, I have no dog in the fight with any of that. And so I just called Dennis just to get a bit of background and yeah, just, I think um, they had both outgrown the relationship and obviously with with the team and John was just looking at, at different options and he just wanted a change and so Boulder was where he wanted to be and at that time I had twenty people I mean at the Olympic trials in twenty sixteen I think in the marathon I had nine and on the track I had five um, and so he fitted in nicely he was completely different to anyone in my group um, his personality uh, was um, for some on the team difficult to take um, but. There was just something about John that I liked and I loved his work ethic. I love the fact that when he raced, he wouldn't execute what I would tell him. I'm thinking all the times that I coached him, he only executed the race strategy twice. Um, but he just was a precocious talent and I really admired that he would get out there and just he had his heart on his sleeve and he'd put it out there. And I think that's the cool thing about coaching is that um, – every athlete's different and you've just got to find what you can work with. I mean, no coach is wrong. I have said this time and time again, it's the athlete. And the athlete has to work out whether they're trying to force a square peg in a round hole to try and make it work or whether they need to actually look for another coach that has the training, the personality, the environment that, that works well. And so John found himself here, which was um, great. And, you know, he, he – there was – probably friction with some of the guys on the team, but when John had to make it work, he made it work. And as I said, there was just something unique about him that, and I don't know if it was the challenge um, coaching him, but I certainly enjoyed uh, working with him. And um, every race that he ran, it wasn't like he stepped off the um, race with an excuse. Like if he messed up, he owned it. And like at CIM, like he owned it. He went way too early and we had been talking about race strategy for, for a long time and, it just it uh, didn't pan out, and then I also remember Club Cross when I was in San Francisco, and he had led all the way up until about the last quarter of a mile before Gareth um, Heat caught him. And again, he didn't execute the the plan. I remember I said, "I want you to sit for the first 4k, and then I want you to be you know a little aggressive between four and six, but then really hammer from uh, from 6k." And I went and stood roughly around about uh, a kilometer up from the race start, and the gun took off, and he come around the corner and he's leading. And I was like, all right, there goes that strategy. John's going to do it his own way. But um, as I said, he he always raced hard. He put it out there and they're the admirable qualities that I really appreciated about him. How long did the two of you work together from the time you started to when he passed? Um, it was about three years. Um so, and he came at a good time, like we had Sean Quigley, who obviously had been running well and, you know, everyone was getting ready for the 2016, you know, Olympic trials. And, um, you know, we'd had a group down at um, Tucson um, over that winter in January. And, you know, it was just great to have, like I said, that team. I mean, John challenged people, but I also think he got the best out of people um, just with the way that he would rub them up. And he had a thick skin, you know. He, he would say things that um, were probably not politically correct to say, uh, but that was him, you know, and um, everyone is wired completely different and that's what made him. But I, like I said, I was never prepared for that phone call that I got from his mum in February. How did your relationship with him evolve over the course of those three years? It, I guess as a coach, you you become a friend, you become a father figure. Um, Like I've always had my athletes over for Thanksgiving Day, Christmas, um, Memorial, Labor. Whenever there's a a public holiday, everyone comes to my house and, you know, I do a barbecue and I do, I look at all the athletes that I have as my own own kids. And he just, and we always used to joke because whenever we would have a barbecue, he would always bring cookies. Like that was his staple. And for a guy that was pretty thin, geez, he could eat. You know, he'd eat three or four plates of food. It was like he'd starved himself for a couple of days before he'd come to my house and he'd certainly clean up. Um, but our relationship was was really good. As I said, he was a different beast, but for some reason I got him. I understood his frustrations. Um, and I also knew that, you know, he didn't have the money. I mean, Boulder's a, an expensive town to live in. And, you know, you're trying to make ends meet with rent and you're trying to make ends meet by putting gas in your car to get to training and, you know, John... Um First off, was taking shortcuts, not getting massage, and not eating adequately, and a lot of that was just due to the fact that he was just trying to save money. And once he started to, um, once he got his contract with um, Adidas, uh, which Jorge Torres was his agent, that certainly helped take away some of the burden that he was facing. Um, but you know, as like I said, John, with John, you knew what you got. He was as honest as they come, and like I said, sometimes he was right, sometimes he was wrong, but he never backed away from what he said or what he did. Yeah. I mean, that speaks to how difficult it is to be a. Prof- professional runner in this
1: country. And just hearing you describe that, the, the pressure is obvious um, for someone in that situation who is not a world beater, um, but is just trying to claw his way to race at that level.
0: Yep, absolutely. And like I said, I just see it with with so many athletes. Like, it's a fight, you know, like, and everyone's just trying to survive. And I think that's what takes away the enjoyment of running. I mean, running is the most simplistic and puristic um, sport you can do. Like, you put one foot in front of the other, you run as hard as you can for as long as you can. And, you know, whoever crosses the finish line first wins. But, to see people now not have that joy. And, you know, I ask a lot of athletes, why did they start running, you know, and a lot of them started running because they wanted to run with their dad or they wanted to make the school team and they speak with all this joy. And it saddens me that at this point that a lot of them, they don't have joy. Like this is like they just, they've got tunnel vision and they're going to make it and they'll sacrifice everything. And, you know, they come to training and you can just see that there's just this, um, tension in them and they just can't let it go. And they've already analyzed, overanalyzed and psychoanalyzed just the training workout. And I'm like, just let it go. Like you'll have good runs and you'll have bad ones. I mean, if you have a bad one, catch up with some friends and go out and have a beer and just let it go. you know. And so trying to get them to realize that training is a cumulative effect and it takes weeks and months and years. And if you've already got this attitude starting out in your career, you're not going to last. And so trying to get them centered as to why they do it, what they want to get out of it, but more importantly, enjoying it. You know, like I've been at workouts where I've just taken watches off athletes and I've thrown it in the middle of the track and I'm like, just run to feel. Like get that perceived feel. Like I don't like GPSs, I don't like heart rates. You know, I don't want them, you know, putting data on Strava and I don't want them putting it all out there on social media. I mean, we never had to deal with that. And it's one of those things that I can look at so many things as a coach and I can tell you which athletes have pretty much run their race before they get to the race. Just by the training data and seeing that they're actually training faster than they can race, which means they're putting all their effort into training. By the time they get to the race, they're just flat you know, and, or maybe mentally they can't get themselves up because of all that workload that they're doing. So the pressure's different. I ran because I loved it. You know, I was doing hundred mile weeks at 16 and I was very fortunate to um, have great influencers like Rob D. Costello and Steve Monaghetti, but I just loved to run. You know, I started running because my dad wanted to lose weight and it always stuck with me. And every time something didn't go right or it went astray, I had friends that could send me where I'd go out and have a few beers and we talk about everything but running. And it would, it would calibrate me that I'd be like, all right, time to get back to work. But these kids are in a bubble and this is all they've got and this is all they're focused on. And and it's just disappointing when they walk away. A lot of them walk away with just such a disappointment about running and how much they dislike running. Sure. I think
1: those are important considerations, whether you're talking about an aspiring professional athlete or even an age grouper, I just had a conversation, actually the podcast that I have out now as we're speaking is with Gwen Jorgensen. And one thing she talked to me about was separating herself from sport. And when she was able to do that, she was able to perform much better. And I think as athletes, whether you're an age grouper trying to run a personal best to qualify for Boston, or you are that aspiring Olympian or professional, it's important to separate yourself from that, have a life outside of running that can you know, they can compliment one another. And then, you know, also as you were just speaking, remind yourself every once in a while why you got into this and why it brings you joy because I think, especially for the aspiring pros, it can become a job. And even for age groupers, it can feel like a job. And I think when it feels like a job, it loses you lose some of the joy in it. You lose some of that fun.
0: Absolutely. And I think everyone wants to just bask in the glory of the good days, but unfortunately there's more bad days than good days. But you've got to be able to calibrate and take out and extrapolate from those bad days, because you learn more from those days if you're open to it, than you do that the days that you have success. The days you have success, you just you bask in the glory. It's amazing. You're not analysing anything. You know the endorphins are going and the adrenaline's pumping. But the days that don't go right, they're the days that you can really take a good look at yourself internally to work out what needs to change and whether that's a change in a coach or training or methodology or uh, your race preparation. You know there is something that you'll be able to pull away from it that will make you better as you move along. And that's learning, isn't it? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Like I had a great 20-year international career and I learned like every week, every month, every year. And if I wasn't open to that, I certainly wouldn't have been able to have had the success that I had.
1: Well, and that process should never end.
0: Yeah. I mean, if we think we've got it all figured out, we're gonna be in trouble before you know it. Well, you know, I had a blessed 45 years of life until last year and I learned so much in that six Month dark period that I had you know just trying to work through things and navigate things, and you know I felt like why am I getting all this bad luck? but I certainly think it was just a life lesson for me to just calibrate, look at maybe some of the dead baggage that I had hanging on, and also look at some of the good things that I'd probably taken for granted, and you know it's um, it's certainly blissful to come out the other side and just be um, moving still moving forward, but just moving in a in a In a better and more comfortable direction. Let's hit pause on that. A few things I want to get back to
1: there, but I want to finish up on John at this point. When you got that call from his mom, letting you know that he had taken his life and you just described your relationship with him and how it evolved and how your athletes, especially when you've been working with someone like John for three years or more, they become like one of your children. You are like a father figure to them. Is that what it felt like when you got that call from his mom? Was it like losing one of your own children? absolutely
0: I mean you just I there were just no words um and and especially with suicide you know like if you would had a car accident or it's something had happened you'd be like okay you can deal with that with suicide it's it's all the questions that have gone unanswered and and there are questions I'm never going to get answers for and I think that's the thing is that as I said before there I just had this self-infliction of like what did I do what part did I play you know could I have prevented it why didn't I see it um and it just it goes through your head like time and time and time again like I just couldn't I couldn't get over it um and even though we tried to do things like we started the Jonathan Gray scholarship fund with um the uh, Twin Cities uh, marathon group and I tried to put all my energies into things that were positive but I just kept getting pulled down and you know, and then I didn't want to coach. I didn't want to go through this again. I didn't want to have to get that phone call um, from a parent that something had happened to their to their child. And, you know, and then again, I'm just like, it's running. Like, why, why did he get tipped over the edge when, you know, this should be a joyous thing for him, not something with so much pressure and expectation. And um, it, it certainly has taken me uh, quite a while to, you know, just um, accept it so to speak. Like I said, there'll be answers I won't get. Um, and that frustrates me a lot um, because you'd like to think that your athlete would be able to tell you everything. And I knew John had been battling with things like he, he had been a very open person. Um, and I just felt like we had everything under control. So when I got that phone call, it just, my heart sunk. How did you accept it
1: and eventually over time begin to make peace with it that you weren't going to get the answers to some of these questions that are gonna linger forever?
0: I think the comforting factor for me was I have three children and I hugged them tight every night and I hugged them tight every morning and I had days that I was stuck in bed and I couldn't get out of bed and, you know, just knowing that I had kids that there there's no there's no judgment, you know. And so it allowed me to just um escape the spotlight and just deal with things, um, on my own. I was stuck, stuck at home for a few months that I just couldn't get out the door. Um, just, you know, and then even, um, like I guess so-called friends, you know, like we always hear that, you know, um, it's okay to be okay and, you know, check in on friends. And it's amazing how, when I went through what I went through, you just don't hear from anyone. Like everyone gets on with their life. Like I think talk is cheap when it comes to this Discussion um, and that 's certainly something that I learned that everyone says it so that they can be seen to have said it, but people don 't check in on each other people don 't just go for a drive and just drop around at someone 's house just to knock on the door to say hello you know like everyone 's so busy in their lives, and people have a calendar just to make an appointment to see a friend like it's just it is ridiculous and ludicrous that that 's the world that we live in today, and we 're disconnected we are socially disconnected from communicating and and socializing with with people that we know. Um, so for me, I, I knew I had to get out of this. Like I I had I've got three young children. You know, I've got twin boys that are eight and a 13 year old daughter and I I know that I had to start believing what I was telling my athletes that the next day the sun comes up. And it was just bit by bit, and as I said, people like Jake Riley and people like Carrie Verdon, they started to reignite the passion that I have for people. You know, I don't think I'm a great coach. I think I'm a good coach. You know, I've obviously had success with the athletes that I've coached and I had success as an athlete myself, but there's there's no rocket science to what I do. My coaching is the passion that I have in people and the investment that I have in people and building them up when they need to be up, when they're already beating themselves up or when they are going well, making sure they don't get a big head and just keeping them calibrated. Um... And that's not to say that something like what I went with with through with John won't happen again, and I will probably be just as heartbroken, um, but I think that I will be able to navigate a little bit better. You're through better it. equipped to deal with it now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not an emotional person. Like, I mean, I just, I am who I am. I wear my heart on my sleeve. I, you know... I trained hard, I raced hard, you know, I um, I try to be honest with everyone, you know, I call it as I see it. Um, sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. Um, everyone's allowed to agree to disagree, you know, like that's the great thing about having debates and conversation, like two people should be able to be completely wrong with each other, but walk away still respecting that, that person. Um, but I guess we've seen a shift like just even with that, like with politics and religion and the world's just the world's a different place, but um, I certainly have more value for things today than I did last year. I have more passion and vision for certain people that I possibly didn't have last year, but I've also disconnected and walked away from some people that might have been friends with me that I didn't really see value with it moving forward. I mean, that's just life. Um, so like I said, I'm just happy that, you know, I'm back out the other side and, you know, I'm back coaching and i um, looking forward to going to nationals in Des Moines in a, in a few weeks with two of my athletes. And I've got uh, two athletes getting ready to run marathons in the fall. So um, I'm just excited about that process. Well,
1: that's great. And I'm glad to hear it.
0: And I think you bring up a great
1: point about communication in this world that we live in now. I think in a situation like you went through, you learn who your friends are, you learn who really does care about you. And to your point, I will pick up my phone and call friends of mine that I've had since high school or college just to say hello. And nine out of 10 times, the first thing they say is, is everything all right? Because people just don't pick up the phone and call one another anymore. Like it's like, oh, we've got to schedule all this. I'll do that with my athletes too. I'll pick up the phone every once in a while and just be like, hey, how you doing? I'm good. Were we supposed to talk today from two thirty to three? No, I'm just calling to see how you're doing. And it's, it, it's, it's sad that that's weird.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think because I do have that strong personality, people just were, Oh, he'll be fine. He, he will bounce through. Um, uh, but even friends in Australia, you know, just, and, and I said to one of my athletes one time, I was just like, all I want is just for you to just come around one night and have dinner, come around one night and have a beer. Like, is it that hard just to knock on the door to check in on your coach? I said, I'm there at all your workouts, whether it's rain, hail, or shine. I'm paying out of my own pocket to get on a plane, to go to your races, to be your support network. I'm not getting paid hardly anything at all to be a coach. But what I want in return is the personal investment I put in you back to me. And I think just... Like I said, I I started I didn't even want to coach. Like I just fell into coaching. And then before you knew it, I've got this big group. I'd started the Boulder Track Club. There's over three hundred members. I'd forgotten how to say no and I just accepted everyone. And then all of a sudden, when it all fell out from underneath me last year, I just looked around and I was like, How did I even get to this position? And I mean that's all on me. Like no one is to is to take fault for that except for me. But having learned from my successes and also learn from my mistakes where I am today and where I want to move forward is a byproduct of all of that. How will you personally continue to move forward? You just mentioned how
1: you have a handful of athletes that you're working with now and are committed to and they have reignited your love for people and helping them to work toward their goals. Where else do you go? You're not interested in taking on more athletes. I'd love to just dig into how you're spending your time.
0: Um, so at the moment, um, I have a number of running events. So I have about 12, uh, races that I put on in and around Boulder and and Boulder County. Um, I, uh, like I said, coaching, uh, five or six athletes, but I'm also working with a a great friend of mine, Jim Estes, on um, a couple of strategic things that we want to actually do at a national level as far as events go. You know, I think that there is a huge craving for some big-time events. You know, we've been talking about cross-country now that the booper events have disappeared, you know, and it's disappointing because they're just such a staple at that level. They're a really good um, introductory race for the athletes that are not quite ready for Olympics and World Championships, but to get the opportunity to go to that. I mean, we don't see cheaper recordings anymore. We've lost Bupa. Um, and then we're also talking about 10,000-meter races. I mean, I love the night of the PBs. That was and, awesome, just the other night. Yeah, and so we're already looking at tracks, and, you know, we think that we've found a track, and now we're trying to pinpoint the date that we think this is going to work. And, and and it's a result of having just 10,000-meter races through the whole day and allowing people that are 35-, 40-minute, 45-minute 10K runners the opportunity to run have their race and then sit around and then watch the, the, the finale that evening. So we think that there is a hole in these races and it's not rocket science on what we can bring to the table to make this work and I'm hoping that we can roll that out in the next couple of months. So we've been doing a lot of uh, travelling, a lot of strategizing and, and looking at that and um, hopefully that helps the sport you know, to continue to blossom. And we certainly got a lot of passion for those athletes that are at that sub elite and trying to break through. They're starved of opportunities. And I've seen it time and time again, when track season rolls around, you might get a race at Stanford, but we know that it's the first Stanford meet is set up for a lot of the college teams. And then Peyton, it's amazing how athletes, you know, can't get into Peyton now. And it's a very small window of athletes that can get in. So there just aren't opportunities. And I know people like Jonathan Marcus are trying to put races and create opportunities. And we want to help elevate that and just provide another option for athletes that can't get into these meets that, hey, here's a quality meet. We're taking care of the entertainment. We're taking care of, you know, getting the pacing. We're going to just Lay it all out for you. All you've got to do is just turn up and give it all. Well, I think that's important from a couple of different standpoints.
1: Number one, creating those opportunities for the elite athletes, because as you mentioned, they're going away um, globally and certainly here in this U.S. So you mentioned Jonathan Marcus, they have the sunset meet coming up just in tomorrow. Just coming up tomorrow, yeah. July 9th. Um, yeah. The morning shakeout sponsoring the women's 5,000. Those are super important. But also, you had mentioned like the night of. 10 K PBs, which is an event that goes on in the UK and they literally have 10,000 meter races all afternoon and evening from, you know, the 40, 45 minute, 10 cares all the way to folks trying to hit world and Olympic standards. But what that does is it fosters connection, um, creates opportunities for the elite athletes, but it also, you know, allows the average age grouper to feel very connected to you know this person who otherwise doesn't share much in common with them, at least in their eyes. Um, it shows like they do. You're racing on the same track, the same distance, um, same condition, same environment. And that's important. The sport has lost that in, you know, in a lot of ways. The Stanford meets are great. But unless you're a track nerd like me or you, you're not going to watch Stanford. You're not going to pay attention to it. But something like the night of PBs or a very focused event where people are all doing the same thing. That's going to create a fan. Um, That's going to create someone who, you know, starts asking questions about what other opportunities are out there, and
0: I I think the sport needs that more than ever. Absolutely, and there's a disconnect. I mean, obviously, a couple of years ago, the whole rock and roll thing of not paying elite athletes, and they weren't interested in elite athletes, and the masses is where they wanted to go. I get that, and I think blame is on both sides. I mean, elite athletes have a responsibility, whether they like it or not. Mm -hmm. Like they're ambassadors and custodians of our sport. like The people that have come before them have created a platform for them to stand on, and it's something that they should not in any way, shape, or form take for granted. They need to continue to build what has been built up from the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. I mean, you look at Bill Rogers and Frank Shorter. You could talk to them. You could touch them. You could feel them. Like, You had that sense that you're standing on the same start line as them, We have this disconnect now of elite want to be elite and they want to be promoted, but they're not doing enough to allow the masses, the people that follow them, the people that adore them, the opportunity to ride with them. And Absolutely. I think these little things are, are healthy conversations to have in how can elite athletes make the sport better? Don't turn up to races, put your hand out, want an appearance fee, want prize money and then disappear. I know a lot of racers now are trying to get them to tap into their own social media feeds to build their followers to follow what they're doing, but there's more that needs to be done to that. Going to your local school and just going for a run with high school kids, you don't need an invite. Like if you're a name, just call the school and speak to the coach and come and do it. And, and do those it. kids are going to be fans for years. Correct. And you don't need to have media there to you know promote what you're doing. Do it because as a person, you want to contribute to the sport to make the sport better and to make the world a better place. And so if some of those athletes could start to do that, see that, then I think we'll see a bigger base start to build and from that we'll start to see more opportunities yeah I couldn't agree more I mean it's part of the athlete's
1: job whether it's written into their contract or not to help further the sport like that's a responsibility that you take on when you are at the top of the game and you have that platform and you have that visibility Uh, and if that goes away this the sport's going to go away.
0: Absolutely. I mean, we now have a a society where we have like elite athletes. So we're talking the very, very best that are sponsored because of their performances. And then we have social influencers that are sponsored and they want to be elite, but they're not, but they're just very, very savvy with how they promote themselves in social media and brands want to partner with that. And it's the people in the middle that are missing out Mm -hmm. and they've got to work out which way they want to go. They either have to elevate themselves and perform better, or they're going to have to use social media and engage with the masses in order to be identified. And, you know, I'm glad I never had to deal with this when I was running. You just ran and you made teams and you got sponsored based on performance. But today there's just so many other different ways that- shifted. Brands are looking for exposure and athletes, they've got to be creative.
1: We've been speaking for a little over half hour now. We haven't even got into your running career, which is really remarkable. You're a three-time Olympian for Australia. You've been based here in the US for a while now. Let's go back to the beginning. How did you get your start in
0: running? Uh, I ran because my dad wanted to lose weight. So my dad had just got to a point where he had felt unhealthy and uh, was overweight and he was a, you know, a little bit of a smoker but a drinker and he just wanted to get into running and luckily um it came at the time that Rob D. Costella was at his peak and so, you know, dad bought, you know, run like Deke, Be Like Deke, Train Like Deke and um and I remember as a young kid I watched uh, the the Billy Bills uh movie Running Brave mm-hmm. and um that's how I got involved, just running with my dad and then having these um inspirational people like Billy Mills and and Rob D. Costella as uh I guess the the beacon of what I wanted to do. Do you remember your first race? I certainly do. My dad had a rule of thumb and that was that I could never do a race unless I had trained for three weeks. And so my first race that I did was, it uh, was called the Barwon Banks Fun Run. It was a 10 K Fun Run. Um, ironically the Barwon Banks, which is a river is now actually known as the troop loop. So it's been named after me. Uh, but that was where I got my, my first race. I was like a 10 or 11 years of age. That's incredible.
1: When did you realize that you had a competitive streak?
0: Um, I'd always been competitive. I would played other sports. I played football and cricket and uh, basketball. I did karate. The thing with running that I loved about it was that you were, you were responsible for your result. Like when you play team sports, someone can let the team down and, you know, the win or the loss can come as the result of an individual. And, you know, I didn't mind if that was on me. You know, if I lost, I could own it. And if I won, then I deserved it. Um, And so when I was about 16, I started to realize that this is what I wanted to do. And I was good in my hometown, but I wasn't good at a national level. Like I'd win school races, but if I had to go and race the best 16 year old kids in the country, like I'd be lucky to finish in the top third. And it was just each year I just got better and better and I set new goals for myself, you know, from fastest runner in the school to fastest runner with all our local schools to fastest runner um, with all the state schools and um, and so forth. And then in 1991, uh, I went to the Australian All Schools Championship um, and it was actually combined with the Australian Under 20 Championships. Like I didn't even know there was competition outside of secondary schools. And I happened to win uh, the Australian Schoolboys championship. And then I'll second overall in the Australian under 20 championships. And everyone started talking about that I was going to be making the world cross country championships for Boston. And I had no idea. Oh, what, 92 at Franklin yeah, Park. Yeah. I had no idea what that meant. You know, uh, this was 91 when I'd done it and uh, Boston was 92. And I had no idea. And anyway, uh, they didn't send a junior team. Uh, well, they sent one individual junior, but they didn't send a, a junior men's team. And then I got a phone call um, for a scholarship opportunity um, at uh, university, so University of Texas at San Antonio. Uh, there was a guy there, Steve Barlow, who was an Australian, and Sean Flanagan was the coach. And anyway, I ummed and because the only thing I really knew about America at that time was Beverly Hills 90210. So <laughs> I was like, oh, I guess everything will be like California and <laughs> – Anyway, no, I decided Texas. not to go and then um, then I decided I wanted to go and then when I decided I wanted to go, school had already started and my scholarship had been given away. So they had suggested that maybe I go to a junior college if that's what wanted to happen. So they made some phone calls and I ended up at South Plains College in Leveland, Texas. Uh, I flew over with my surfboard, uh, not knowing that the closest ocean was about <laughs> about six hours away. Um, and that certainly was the making of me and my career, to be in the panhandle of Texas, no friends, no one, being so far removed from everything, being in a dry town. You know, we could start drinking at 18. And of course, in the US, you couldn't till you were 21. Um, that, yeah, my parents gave me a one-way airline ticket. And they said, when you want to come home, call us and we'll pay for the return. And three days in, I called them and said, look, I can't handle this. This is nothing like Australia. It's nothing like what I thought it would be. And my mum said, we knew you would say that, and you're there for six months and hung up. And I ended up being there for 18 months. And it certainly helped prepare me for being an international athlete. And there was nothing in any town or any race or wherever I traveled around the world that I was not prepared for by my um, learning curve at South Plains College.
1: Where did you go after 18 months? Did you go back to Australia or did you matriculate to a four-year
0: institution? No, I went back home. Um, It was 94. I wanted to make the Atlanta Olympics in 96. Um, And I got home in, uh, it was probably around November, December. Um, I had gone out Uh, for Christmas Eve drinks with friends. And uh, unfortunately I was assaulted uh, one night walking to get a taxi to go home. And uh, I woke up with a broken jaw and shattered cheekbone and a blood clot on the brain. And that pretty much eradicated all of uh, 1995. um, And obviously my hopes of trying to make the Atlanta Olympics. So you missed the whole year of training due to that assault? I missed about four months, but then just trying to get fit and trying to get going. I hadn't, like my jaw was all wired and I couldn't do anything until the blood clot had dissipated. And right. so that obviously took a, a long time to to happen. And, and then it was just, well, I'm going to move to a place called Ballarat, which is where Steve Monaghetti was. And, um, and I just wanted to train with him. And I also think too, that um, even though that slowed the process, Um, It also gave me a chance to realize that what I needed to do to make the Olympics was probably not what I thought in 94 when I flew home and the work that was needed. Um, There was probably a lapse in what I thought and then where I could go and I forgot what was needed in between. So working with Mona um, and he'd made the Atlanta Olympics and then just seeing what needed to be done and how you needed to be uh, much more professional as an athlete then opened my eyes up completely. And then I knew from 96 when I was watching the Atlanta Olympics on TV, at 4 a.m. in the morning that in 2000, I was going to be making the team. In
1: retrospect, was not being able to try and qualify for the Olympics in 96 a
0: blessing for you? Absolutely. It just made me a lot more determined and um, a lot more motivated to make sure that uh, I left no stone unturned. And I think, you know, I would have come home and I would have had this idea and I would have gone through the process. And if I'm going to be completely honest, I probably would have fell short. So um, at least this way, it just hardened me up a lot more. Rewinding
1: to your time in Texas, what were some of the biggest takeaways from that experience in your life?
0: Uh, so the coach that I had was a guy called James Morris and he coached Philemon Hannick, Brian Sheriff, Leogard Martin. I mean, Philemon Phil Hannick at the time was one of the best racers in the US from uh, 5K through to the half marathon. You know, he was unbeaten for for a couple of years. And uh, I just had a coach that was extremely invested um, in, in me and was invested in the team. And, you know, I, I was like a big fish in a Small ocean in Australia, and I come to the US, and all of a sudden I realised oh, I was the tiniest fish in the world, and you know how competitive like NAI and uh, junior college is with the influx of Africans that are there, and I really had to step up my game, and um, I was just thankful that I had a coach that was very people orientated. Um, there was nothing fantastic about his training. He just was invested in the in the people. And I think that's probably where I've got a lot of my um, coaching philosophies from about the person. It sounds because like a- he, um, I was not the easiest athlete to coach um, and he was able to manipulate different ways to get the best out of me. What made you difficult as an athlete to coach? Um, just my personality. I think at the end of the day, I'm a sprinter and a distance guy's personality. <laughs> um, and uh, like I'm, I'm, I want to be aggressive with my training. I want to be aggressive with my racing. Like I want to put it all out there. And when I cross that finish line, I want to know that I've given everything and there's no excuses like win, lose, or draw. Like I gave it everything. And it's really, really hard. Like there was nothing wrong with my motivation, but sometimes it's hard to break in a Brumby, you know, it's it's hard to break in a stallion. And, um, I think my coach just had the patience to work with me, to get me to just come down a level. I mean, you've got really two types of athletes. You've got those that it's like leading a horse to water, but you can't force it to drink. And then you've got the others that are just going so hard and you're trying to pull the reins on. And that was me. And he was able to just get me to not hammer out every workout, not hammer out easy, every easy run, not hammer out every long run. Um, and to make sure that the training level was at that point that I wasn't redlining and what I was saving would help me to race better. And, you know, we, we came up with this, um, like this quote that I would train at 90% and I'd race at 110. Now, there's no such thing as 110, but you can understand the reason why we came up with that. Even out to 100. Yeah, that's right. Do you use
1: that experience in your own coaching now when you see an athlete who shares a similar personality to you and you're like, hey, I I understand you and how
0: you operate,
1: but here's why we need to scale things back a little bit.
0: Absolutely. I I tell everyone, do as I say and not as I do. And there's not going to be one thing that they want to experiment or try or do that I've not done. And the reality is it's boring training week after week, month after month, year after year. And it's the cumulative effect of that that's going to make you good. Trying to take a shortcut here or trying to push the envelope there, you're going to get injured. And then the more injuries you get, the harder it's going to be to keep coming back. And, you know, athletes are really like a cat with nine lives. But if you're continually using your lives up with injuries, you're just gonna to get to a point where your body's riddled and broken down and you're done. So trying to get them to have the foresight, but more importantly, have the confidence in me is the contributing point that allows them to have success or not. And, you know, I will know within six to twelve months if I'm a good fit for that, for that athlete. Um, and there's nothing wrong if I'm not. But if they can't buy in and they can't um, take that step back to let me do all the, the mental work and they've just got to provide the physical work, then you just know that that relationship's not going to pan out. Back to your career as an athlete, what did making the Olympic team in 2000 do for you? Um, at the time, not a lot. I really was green behind the ears where it was in Sydney. That's How an hour old were you? from Melbourne. I was 26, 27. Um, I really underestimated the impact of the Olympics had the Olympics been in another country. I think I would have gone in with just a a totally different perception of things. Um, but because it was in Sydney, I'm like, well, it's just an hour up the road, you know, we're going to be doing all our training here in Australia. Um, I, to me, it was just like, it was just going to be another race. Um, I didn't really like, this is the Olympics. It's a, it's a home Olympics. And I think had the Olympics been somewhere else my, and the second Olympics were in Australia, I certainly would have embraced it and I would have appreciated it a lot more. But, you know, I debuted at, at 2.11 at the London Marathon. And, you know, when the Olympics rolled around, I was just like, yep, I'm going to be in the top 10. And I trained as hard as I could. I got a stress fracture um, at the start of January of that year. Um, right up in my femur and I was training um, stupidly <laughs> three times a day um, because I'd read somewhere the Japanese were doing that and I was doing, you know, crazy, crazy training volume and I'd slipped off a step and basically what had happened was I had just um, like shifted the, the the pelvis just slightly but doing that volume the femur wasn't sitting properly in and just, you know, that constant pounding that led to it. a stress fracture. And so I missed eight weeks of training and then I had six weeks to come up for our Olympic trials. And luckily I had a guy staying with me, a guy called Richard Narurka, who was a great athlete for, for Great Britain. And he was injured and so we were cross training a lot together. And then I went to the Olympic trials and I ran 216 or 217, but I'd qualified for the Olympics off that you know, minimal amount of training. But what I didn't do after that was take time to let everything recover and then start the process again because the Olympics were in Australia and I wanted to run well. So I just kept hammering the training. I didn't take any time off. I figured I'd already had eight weeks off. I've only been training for six weeks. I now need to put together four or five really good months of training to be in the top ten. And the Olympics rolled around and we were on the last day and You're not prepared for the highs and lows that come with athletes. You know, like if they're bundled out on day one, they're out partying and drinking, but they're staying in the village, and you've still got to keep your mindset switched on for the race on the last day. And, you know, day by day, people will be bundled out and they're all partying and, the marathon was at four o'clock in the afternoon and you're trying to go and have breakfast the morning of the race and everyone's coming in from having massive nights yeah, and the games are pretty much over at that point, minus your event. The athletes don't care except for the marathoners, right. you know, and everyone's getting excited then for the closing ceremony. So it was extremely difficult to try and stay really focused on what I needed to do. But, you know, I remember going out to the race start and, you know, the crowd, you know, Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi. And, you know, you just were like caught up in it and, we took off and I was fourth at halfway and running the race of my life. And the crowd were like 10 deep. And, you know, it was just an unbelievable experience. And then at 23K, we had to drop down about, you know, three, 400 meters on this downhill before we took a really steep incline to go up the Glebe Island Bridge. And as we were striding out going down the uh, the hill, I just felt this like pop in my in my stomach. And It felt like a stitch, and as soon as we had to go up the Glebe Island Bridge, I'm like, "Oh, geez, this is God! I've got a stitch. Why why have I got a stitch? Did I consume too much fluids at the 20k mark?" And as we were going up the up the bridge, it just was getting like slightly tighter and tighter and tighter, and we had to run into a headwind. So once I dropped off that group that we were in with a lead pack of ten, all of a sudden I just started to fall back through the field, and then as we went down the other side of it, I couldn't get it to go away. And it got worse and worse. And, you know, I remember at 36 kilometers, I was like vomiting blood and I was just like, ah, this is just going to be a day that I'm just going to have to finish the race. And I was motivated by the fact that you had to finish within two and a half hours. If you didn't finish within two and a half hours, you had to finish on the warm-up track. And this is the thing that really is disappointing about our sport is the closing ceremony is being, you know, transported to billions of people around the world. And, if you haven't finished, sorry, you go on the warm-up track where there's probably a couple of officials waiting for you. Your we'll family's not even going to get in there. TV yeah, everyone's at the closing ceremony. Oh, so man. I, I, I don't really remember much, but, you know, I ran into the, um, into the stadium, uh, I ran around the stadium and as soon as I finished, I just wanted to get out of there, you know, and there was Rob De DiCostella, Steve Monaghetti, uh, Rod Dehyden and Australians have, Australians have always had this tradition that when you, you go away as a team of three, when you cross that finish line, it doesn't matter whether you win or what position, you wait until the last person finishes and if you're in, a major championship race like the world champs or olympics and you want to withdraw you to take your singlet off and you to leave it on the side of the road like that's the tradition that we have and so like you just you're trying to get in there and i just remember seeing those guys and i just started crying i didn't know what was wrong and i'm looking for an exit to get out and i found a door and i walked out And as i walked out it was like this massive thud even though there wasn't and the door closed and i couldn't get back into the stadium and i was like shoot. And my gear was sitting in the, um, in the uh, call area where everyone goes to. And coaches are all looking for me. And I'm crying. I didn't know what was going on. So then I made the 2K walk back to the village. <laughs> and I'm walking in my shorts and singlet and my race gear. And there's no one around. Everyone's in the stadium. And I get to the, um, into the village. And the only people that are there are the security guards. And they're not going to let me in because I didn't have any accreditation. And I'm just crying. And then they're like, all right, we'll let you in. We'll take you to your room. And I got to my room and I just put my head down and I sobbed for like an hour and I didn't find out until about uh, eight weeks later or 10 weeks later that I'd actually torn my rectus abdominis. And that was a result of the stress fracture that I had in January. That whole uh, area around the pelvis was so weak hadn't healed. and hadn't healed and I'd been favoring it. And because I was overstriding, it just got to a point where that muscle just couldn't you know, maintain what it needed. And it just it popped. So what'd you end up finishing? Obviously you broke two and a half hours because you finished in the stadium. Yep. 66. Um, and then you deal with a home Olympics where everyone just sees you as a loser. You know, it's not like, Oh, great job making the Olympics. We're basking in the glory of medalists. And if you're not a medalist, you failed. And so I then had to deal with that for the next couple of months because, you know, particularly being at home and being a marathon runner, you've got to go to all these events and basically you just you're, you're shunted to the back and all the medalists are at the front And then what happens is, you know, you do your speeches and it's like, all right, the athletes are going to go out and, you know, sign autographs and you move out to walk around and there's no one there just following the medalist. So I'd learned a lot in that year of the highs and lows of what it takes being an Olympic athlete and what it takes to be successful. And that was certainly a a turning point for me um, to then get better and faster and spend the the rest of my career focused on trying to break Rob D. Costello's marathon record. I was going
1: to ask after that initial disappointment, did you know? that you wanted to pick yourself back up and stay with it and see if you could make another Olympic team and, you know, just sort of rectify what had happened in well, Sydney?
0: Well, said earlier on that you either get broken or you break through and that allowed me to break through because, you know, I went to Rotterdam 2001, ran 210 and finished fifth and, you know, um, then uh, ran 27 50 on the track, won Zatapec, um, went to Commonwealth Games 2002, World Championships in uh, 2003 in Paris. I had a broken toe, but still ran 211 and finished 17th. Like I was 11th coming in with about three miles to go and then made Athens in 2004. When did you move to the US? You've been here in Boulder for how long now? So I came out here in 02 and 03 for training prep. I used to be based in Australia and then mm-hmm. I'd go to uh, England. And so Rob D. Costella had said, look, come to boulder and and check it out i was meant to come here in 2001 because i was running chicago but i got a calf injury about six weeks before so um i came out here 02 for three weeks and i stayed with a fellow australian called andrew leatherby and then i came out here for six weeks and in 2003 and stayed with leatherby but it wasn't until after the beijing olympics you know like i had a really good career but i bombed out in three three olympic marathons and i was going to retire and you know i'd said to my wife look let's just go to the U S for a year. Um, I'll do Boston marathon and New York marathon cause I'd never done them. And then I'll come home. Um, and so in March of 2009, we come over here with that plan. I ran Boston marathon and then I'm just like, why would I want to retire? Like, this is what running is like the Boston marathon was just such a, a reigniting, um, flame for me. That you know you're running on something that had been going for 110 years, and you know knowing all the legends that had ran before me, and knowing all the people, and it's really unique to still have that course not change and run from Hopkinton to Boylston Street. And I know there was just something that that flicked, and then I said to my wife, stupidly, why don't I try and make a fourth Olympics? And the rest is history. We've been here 10 years now. And
1: what was it about Boulder specifically? not that attracted you to it because we learned why that came to be, but that's kept you here for the last 10 years.
0: Well, Boulder just has this unbelievable tradition and, and history. I mean, we're looking at the Flatirons, you know, here at the Alpine Bank and, you know, there's just this mystique about it. And, you know, we've got Frank Shorter, Mark Platches, uh, Steve Jones, you know, Uta Pipping, uh, Colleen de Rook, like the list of legends in this town. Like there's no other place in the world that has what we have here. And there's this strong connection, you know, Hatura Barrios, like you just, you see these people and... You're talking about things that happened years ago it was like it was yesterday. And it is such a tight knit community. And, you know, I've fallen obviously in love with with Boulder and, you know, I've fallen in love with, you know, the people that I've come into contact with. And um, it's just a place that even though I don't run anymore, I'm still motivated to get on the bike or, as like I said, now to coach people and, you know, to go to put on races so that people can actually, you know, train for something and then race. And so giving back Um, from a sport that has um, enriched my life greatly um, is something that, you know, I look forward to and there's no better place than to do it in the epicenter of, uh, of Boulder. When did you decide that it was time to retire as an athlete? Um... So it was funny in the last few years, I tried to make the Olympics in 2012 and I failed at that. And I decided, oh, all right, well, I'm going to be a master in uh, 2013. Maybe I'll do some masters running. And then there's just something about masters running that I just don't don't like. Like it's just super competitive. And you got these 40, 42, 44 year olds that just want to whoop up on you because you were successful as an elite athlete. And got they, didn't, on your back. they didn't do anything for 10 or 15 years. They didn't make Olympics. And I think by not doing much, their body obviously a lot healthier. Mine's riddled. And, you know, so they want to stick it to you. And I was just, I went and did Boston and I I won Boston as a master in, um, in, uh, 2013. But then that was a year we had the bombings and that was just another thing in my life that just changed me completely, you know, with what happened. And the race hotel ended up being the site for the FBI and for the military and for the police. And you're seeing tanks going up and down and just being locked in that hotel and not, no one could come in, no one could leave. And knowing what happened with, uh, with the, the young boy that, um, passed away and his dad had just stopped and had said, good, you know, had kissed him and went and finished the race. And then knowing that he was never going to see his, his son again, like all that stuff, just it, it really um, played on me. And, you know, I then for the rest of 2013, wasn't wasn't motivated to to run. And that just what, took the air out of the balloon. It did. I wanted to run New York at the end of the year. So 2013 was going to be what I wanted to do in 2009. I was going to run Boston Marathon, New York Marathon and retire. So I won Boston and then they weren't taking elites at New York because of the hurricane that had come through Hurricane Sandy. So New York had a very limited Um, budget. They weren't focused on elites. It was just going to be primarily Americans and putting a lot of work back into the communities with obviously such a uh, horrendous um, event that took place. So I was like, well, if I'm not doing New York, what's the point? And for some reason, I always had in my mind that New York would be my final marathon, a little bit like Frank Sinatra, you know, like it's always the last song you hear when you're out. And so once that happened, I was like, what's the point? And then I'd gone to the world, uh, sorry, the US indoor championships in Albuquerque, uh, in 2014. And that was the year that we had all the problems with, you know, Alberto and Jerry. And I sadly was just in the middle of it and it wasn't even planned. And I was just, it was just crazy. And as all this was going on, Dave Monty taps me on the shoulder and he says, so Lee, do you still want to finish your career at New York marathon? And I was like, what? Uh, yeah. And he sort of caught me off guard. And so then I decided, this was in February, well, I've done no running. I better go back to Boston and defend my title um, because I'm going to do New York in uh, in um, in at the end of the year in November. And so I put together eight weeks of training. I went to Boston. My hip blew out at 20K. I basically just walked and jogged and Got through in three and a half hours. I got sunburnt. I flew home. Three days later, I ended up in emergency. I had a blood clot on my lung as a result. And I was like, I don't know if New York's going to happen. But I then came out with the the um, the role of all right. I'll go back to Australia. I'll do Gold Coast Marathon. That'll be my final marathon. And then I'll get ready for New York. And New York will be my final marathon. So uh, at the end of 2014. I retired, and then obviously the next marathon I did was um, LA in John's honor, but that was never never planned. Yeah, was that a hard transition for you to move on from
1: this career? As an athlete. So a lot of athletes struggle with that.
0: Yep. It's extremely difficult. And you spend your whole life, like I had a 20 year career as an athlete, you travel the world, you're sponsored, you get appearance fees, you get prize money, you're finishing in the top five of, you know, world marathon majors and, you know, you're trying to break records and all of a sudden it's gone. And you're just sitting there and you're like, well, what am I going to do now? Because as an athlete, like you're doing 130, 150 miles a week. So you're training morning, you're training night, You're getting an afternoon nap in to recover for all the training. You got two massages a week. You got physical therapy. You go to the gym twice a week. Your whole eating structure is built around your running. Like I knew what I was eating from Sunday right through to Saturday every week. All of a sudden it's gone and it's such a tough transition. And I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So I bought a running store and I was coaching and I was like, all right, well, this is what I'm going to do for you know, the rest of my life. And um, it took me quite a while to just be able to then navigate a different structure, a different daily structure, weekly structure that was different from what I'd been doing for 20 years. We have to wrap up here in a few minutes. So I can move on to my next interview,
1: but what advice would you give to athletes who are transitioning out of their professional career? There are a few of
0: them who listen to the show. yeah. To make sure that you've got things built up through your running career so that you know that when the day comes, you've got something to fall back on. And that's why I always encourage athletes to work 20 hours a week. Like, don't be a full-time athlete. Like, 20 hours a week is an outlet from your running. It allows you to connect with other people that are outside of running. And it gives you something to fall back on should running not happen, whether it's injury or you retire or or whatever. Um, So if you can put those things in place when that day comes that's certainly going to be tough transition to make, but at least you've got things in place to help you. And family, you know, like I've got kids and we've just moved into a different sphere. So they're playing sports and I'm running them around to different events and I'm coaching. So I'm putting time and energy into, into other people. So finding that balance is going to be different. But if you've already put things in place, nearing the end of your career, even though it'll be different, it'll balance itself out.
1: Well, and I I think that's super important even for the average runner at the age grouper who doesn't do this as a profession is to make sure that running occupies a healthy space in their life because... We're all going to slow down at some point. Some people just don't deal with that well uh, and they let running define them or they think it defines them and it can affect other areas of their life and then vice versa, making sure the other things that you do in your life are supporting your running. And I think that applies universally, not just to the
0: professional athletes. I think it gets back to a lot about what we talked about with John and it's the mental well-being of people and... I mean, how many people have we seen, you know, retire, not be able to move on and then they've taken their life like that. They, they feel like that that was the only thing that they were known for and important for. And as human beings, like we're all important, like we, we all make the world go round, and we're the ones that, you know, are trying to make the world a better place. And I think sometimes athletes and, and, and people around them, I mean, once you retire, that's it, your agent doesn't care. Your agent just moves on to the next athletes are coming. The coach, well, he's still coaching other people and sponsors, they've all moved on. Like, it's like the world stops and that's never gonna change. But having things put in place where you've got your family, you've got your friends, you've got a job that you can fall back on, putting that network in place is extremely important. And, you know, there is an obligation for sponsors to help those athletes transition. There is an obligation for coaches to help those athletes. There's an obligation for agents to do all that and not just be there for the coin. You know, don't, don't just be there for the money and for the athlete and to get what you need and then discard them. They're people with feelings and do that process right. And again, there are some people in that area that you know, should have a bit of accountability to make sure that they've worked with those athletes, they've benefited financially from those athletes, that their job is to then also make sure that they can help them move into the next phase of their life. I think that's a great perspective. Really enjoyed this
1: conversation. Lee, thanks for making the time to sit down and speak with me today.
0: Thanks, Murray, and thanks for coming to Boulder.
1: All right, we did it. Really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you so much for listening in and being a part of this journey with me. If you'd like to show your support for the podcast, please tell all your friends and followers about it on your preferred social media platform and encourage them to tune in. You can also send me feedback directly on Twitter. It's probably the best way. At my name, that's just Mario Fraioli. Uh, You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on. That helps new listeners to discover the show. If you want, you can also support my work directly on Patreon by going to themorningshakeout.com slash support. Thank you so much to everyone who supported the show in one form or another already. It really means a lot to me. Before we wrap up, I'd also like to thank my man John Summerford of bearsrecords.com he takes care of my audio needs for the show, including all the music which he produces himself, and he's a big part of my small team here at The Morning Shakeout. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called the Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and you've been listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast.